We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is produced, the Wajak Noongar people, and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. So welcome back, everybody, for another episode. Um, Courtney, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Greg? Not too bad. Su- surviving, you know? Yes, surviving. Yeah. We're, we're both at the, the pointy end of our PhD, so yep. everything's happening at once. <laughs> <laughs> Plenty of work getting crammed in. Yeah. You know? It's like anything, it's always when there's a deadline approaching, that's oh, when it gets absolutely. the most busy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but yeah, we just had a really great conversation with Pip Brennan, who's the executive director of the Health Consumers Council in Western Australia. That's right. And uh, this conversation is really, really interesting. Uh, I, I think everyone will enjoy it. Uh, she's had a very eventful life, I think. Lots of things to talk about and lots of really great perspectives um, yeah. on all things health and advocacy and uh, crime-related and maternity-related. Oh, just things that so happen. So many things, yeah. yeah. Things that happen to people in life and yeah. and Pip's one of these people that, that is motivated to do something about it. Absolutely. And try and make things better yeah. you know, in future. So we'll let you guys have a listen to our chat with Pip Brennan. Yeah, enjoy. So I'm very happy to be able to welcome Pip Brennan to the podcast. Thanks for joining us, Pip. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this is going to be a really interesting chat, I think. You've got a wide range of experience and um, we're looking forward to having you share some of that with us. Yes, I'm interested in everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I just want to start by just letting people know, I guess, what your current role and title is and then maybe we can delve into some of the various things you've done over the years. Yes, so currently I'm the Executive Director of the Health Consumers Council, so that's a non-profit organisation that's been going back 25 years, and mm-hmm. I've been doing that role for just over six years. Oh, excellent. All right. And and what led you to there, and, and what have you, I guess, what's been your, your pathway into that? It's interesting, you know, I actually did do an arts degree at UWA many years ago, nice. and you feel like that kind of... Um, qualifies you for nothing really and everything all at once and so (laughs) what happened for me is I sort of stumbled into a museum career which I had here and abroad and then um, then I did teaching for a while and then I came back to Australia pregnant and that was where my um, health consumer advocacy journey began for me although I didn't realize at the time I just thought Mm -hmm. I was pregnant Uh, so what what really concerned me was how difficult it was for women to make informed maternity care choices and you know, all we really wanted was evidence-based care. We didn't want the dolphin music and all that. Yeah, so we just yeah. wanted evidence-based care. Why Why is that so hard? Um, so my very, very first volunteering like I ever did was I was as a mother. Um, my daughter was very young and I edited a home birth magazine. It was called Birthplace. Oh, cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that kind of sparked something in me. And since then, I have always volunteered. It's really fascinating to think, you know, what would I do with no money at all? And that's where the real passion can lie. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So your, your experiences in ma- the maternity system really kind of kick-started your interest in health more generally. Very much so. So it's that lived experience thing. Um, then I got quite involved with a, um, an organisation called Mother Nurture. It was about supporting women in the early years. And so after a while, sometimes, you know, whilst I never lost that the interest in the importance of the birth experience, um, 
you also realise how many women are so poorly supported. So Mother Nurture was, you know, massage clinic and creche for women. It was um, started up by this incredible 18-year-old mum and I sort of took it over when she'd been doing it for a year and she was over it. And I'd just come back from Europe after 10 years and thinking, where shall I live? And saw Mother <laughs> Nurture in Scarborough, thought, right, I'll live in Scarborough. But, um, you know, that um, what was so interesting for me was I expected it all to be, you know, slightly, you know, Birkenstocky type mums like myself. But it was everybody, everybody, every woman was exhausted and felt so poorly supported. So it started to really broaden out my, you know, my, my thinking from, you know, probably what you'd consider like that sort of fairly intellectual first time mum, you know, mm. doing all her reading, all that sort of stuff. And I started started to sort of open my thinking a lot more around you know how how do we support? You know how do we how do we work in a society that treats uh, raising the next generation as an optional extra? Yeah, and and just to give us a bit of context, what time period was this? When, when... so that was just a couple of years. So I did that from when my daughter was um, about eighteen months until she was about three and a half. Okay, and about three, yeah, yeah. Mm. And was this sort of. Uh, in like 2000 or? Yeah, so that was, um, so I got back in, I had my daughter in 98 okay. and I got back to Australia in 99 and I um, sort of settled back in Perth for a wee while, had a crack going back to Greece, seeing if it worked with her dad, didn't work, came back, got really involved in Mother Nurture and um, and then I moved to Corbulup. Um So I found out by accident that there was a scheme for single mums and you could buy half the house from Homesworth and have the other half. So <laughs> I moved to Corbulup, which became a huge kind of point of destiny for me yep. Because um, I met the man over the road who's now my husband. <laughs> so that was really amazing. But then six months after that, that incredible, I guess, honeymoon, special time in your life when you finally meet that person who's right for you. Um, and then something completely unexpected happened, which I used to call the slash in the canvas. Somebody broke into the house and assaulted me in front of my daughter. Right. And so that then began this whole other journey. And yes, you know, I was still interested in birth and I was still interested in maternity, but but I, I realised just how terrible the system is for victim services. Yeah. So I started to try and get involved in that. And that's when I guess, you know, I'd gone from the editing the Birthplace magazine to, you know, work, running Mother Nurture, getting my first Lottery West grant, which is terribly exciting, <laughs> and mm. then sort of moving on to another sphere and really trying to see what, what else could I do here, sort of keeping on picking up those skills bit by bit. Mm-hmm. And um, so eventually um, we created like a peer support group. We actually got some funding. I did mention this on a Facebook post, but um, Christian Porter was the Attorney General who oversaw that funding stream once. Western once Australian a, at, When he was General. still in West Australia, yeah. Yeah, yeah, West Australian Attorney General. So he was actually also the DPP lawyer who sentenced the perp- who was at the court when my perpetrator was finally sentenced. Okay. It's one of those weird things in life. Sorry, DPP? So sorry. That's the Department of Public Prosecutions. Right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the um, lawyers for the Crown. So yep, sorry. Nice. So it's yeah. just one of those weird things. And so when he became Attorney General and was overseeing this funding ground, I was really hoping that that slim personal connection might work, mm. but it didn't. And the, okay. um, it was, was defunded. So uh-huh. I was sort of really, you know, really doing quite a lot of volunteer work. Yeah. Plus also... Um, I, I had um, entered the workforce. Yeah, okay. That's after, cool. you know, after my daughter was by about, by then she was four, and I yep. actually got a job at the Health Consumers Council as an advocate. Okay. Oh, okay. So that was when I sort of made that switch from doing all this volunteer work to bringing all my skills forward from my museum profession and teaching and the volunteer work I'd mm. done and all I'd learned about health mm-hmm. into an actual role. And so I, as an advocate... Um, 
I thought this would be amazing for victims of crime. Imagine if the moment that a crime is reported, you actually had someone who could be your individual person. Yeah. I mean, what happened for me at the time is when, once I called the police, you know, and I called, you know, the man across the road is now my husband. Yeah. So he mm-hmm. came over to, to see if I was okay. Yeah. And and the first thing the police said is we have to take him away and we have to interview him. What I needed was I needed oh, him there. But right. see, they've got rule of law stuff. They've got to get the evidence right or else the case will fall yeah. over. Exactly. So, they, you know, they were very kind and very supportive, but it's still just think, imagine if you had an advocate to, t- to talk you all through the whole system. Of mm. course. Mm. Yeah. So uh, you, you said just taking a step back, you did all of this volunteer work to then lead you to this advocacy job, which I think is fantastic. Um, were you continuing the museum career around that volunteering and how no, did that work? No, was the it, museum stuff, honestly, when I left it in 96, I've that, just, was it. that was it. Yeah, okay. it was not. Because it was, I sort of stumbled into it because I had, of all things, computer experience. And like... <laughs> A lot of sectors, the museum also. sector, had um, gotten this giant mainframe system they didn't know how to use. And yeah, then I was course. really lucky. I was able to work on the Kalgoorlie Museum exhibition, the Bicentennial in 1988. Yeah. So I actually got exhibition experience and I went to London and I got a job at the right. Maritime Museum right. in Greenwich. Mm-hmm. And then when I left that in and went to Greece to teach English, I never have never done museum since. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So then That's it the was mainly degree. volunteer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. it was mainly volunteering until you got this, this advocacy job. My, yeah. yeah, once I had my daughter, I... I did find a little bit like you feel like you've sort of fallen off the edge of the earth because you're no longer in the yeah. workforce, especially an older first-time mum like myself who'd had yeah. quite a significant career. Um, I, I needed something. And what was so great about volunteer work, and especially that volunteer work, is I could include my daughter. Mm, and mm-hmm. also if, you know, she was cutting up rusty and needed to go home for a nap, I could just Turn say, I've got to go. And, um, you know, it was it provided a really great um, a, a working environment just without a salary. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Just okay. to reflect a little bit on your experience as, as, a, as a victim of crime, essentially, uh, aside from the trauma of being assaulted, which, you know, sounds awful, um, what, what did you see and experience uh, with the system that kind of motivated you to, to want to set that up and, and help other people who'd been through the same thing? What, what did you experience going through that? Well, I think one of the first things I experienced was a real eye-opening because when you're from the sort of privileged background that I'm from, there are a lot of things that can go right over your head. So when something like that happens, you you, you have to get on that post-traumatic stress train. There isn't really a choice. But what will happen for people is that, that you know, they may get stuck on that train and it becomes post-traumatic stress disorder. So there's a lot of things you can put in place to help heal. You know, we are actually wired to heal as humans. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, again, with, with um, education, reflection and privilege, it was a lot easier for me to make that shift. And also, I think just the, the sheer dumb luck of your personality, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I, I just t- tend to be quite resilient. That's just a that's just what you're born with. So there's a lot mm-hmm. of complexities around healing. Yeah. I don't want to pretend that it's an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know for me, um, there were a lot of things I didn't understand, just didn't understand. And so you think, okay, so I've got all this knowledge, experience, skills backing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of the perfect victim, you know, so you, you kind of do have an easier process through the police and mm-hmm. justice systems, but so much of it there were just massive gaps. So you'd have the health system, you'd have the um, victim services support, you'd have the police, and you'd have 
the justice. The justice was by far the worst, but um, but there was all these gaps in between and, and no nowhere to mm. go. I mean, mm. a simple thing like I I didn't really want to think about the impact of my daughter because I thought, oh, she's too young, she won't remember. And somebody said, yeah, you need to get her reviewed, you know, and, and mm. that wasn't actually picked up either. And when I went to... Um, went to SARC, the Sexual Assault Resource Centre, to say, look, how can I find someone who can review my daughter? Mm-hmm. They were like, oh, we can't give you a recommendation because that would be, you know, that would be trying to promote somebody oh, above someone else. Bias, I said, look, I'm yeah. lost here. I'm lost. Right. I just need a signpost. I don't know where to start. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting too, you know, the services are not very good for the one-off sort of thing, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I kind of get. Yeah. Right. And I guess for me too, a sort of understanding too, um, like I didn't understand, for example, if you've been abused as a child, then the chances of being sexually assaulted as an adult are so, 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 so much higher. Yeah. I didn't know that. Literally all that stuff just okay. straight over your head. And again, it's mm. like, well, what are we doing about this? And, you know, I know on the day I was told, look, you can either have individual support or you can have a group. And at the time I thought, you know, it was like in the morning and I've been there for hours and hours and hours. And <laughs> I thought, oh, group sounds good. Yeah. But there was no group for eight or nine months. Oh, right. Oh, so, yeah, okay. I mean, if you think about it for a moment and how many women would mm. need that sort of support, mm. why is that? And yeah. also why was I offered such a stupid choice? <laughs> because, you know, clearly yeah. I needed individual counselling. Right. You know? yeah. Yeah. So it, it so, almost seems like... Between each of these sectors, you basically get given a, a pamphlet and then on your way, figure it out yourself. And I guess for people who are victims of crime, like you you just don't want to think about it and you want to, you need some help. You need well, someone to advocate. So, yeah, <laughs> and everybody's so different, you know. Yeah. Everybody's so different, you know. Sorry, I was just got an interruption. It's a cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first actually. Going on. That is the first. Is that yeah, a cleaner? Yeah. <laughs> I think this is episode forty, and that's the first time. And that's the first time. So. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we stopped you midstream there, Pip. Uh, and I can't remember what I was saying. No, I don't remember what was happening either. <laughs> I, think, I, think you, I think you'd made the point that you, uh, often you just get left with a pamphlet. And yeah, pamphlet that's yeah. correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting too, around about that time, you know, there was a, I, I might be getting my timing slightly mixed up, but around about that time frame, there was, you know, my first experience of being part of an inquiry. So um, there was a really dreadful case that, that spawned the um Prosecution of Assaults and Sexual Offences Inquiry. And so because I'd, by that time I'd been doing some work around trying to bring together a group of women, you know, th- you know, they said, oh, do you want to come along and give ed- evidence? So you do all that stuff. Then you get the report. And I thought, I wonder what happens next. <laughs> and again, you know, the, the, because of, I guess, you know, the perfect victim thing, and I do look quite a lot like the people in the health service and other provisions, you know, I did get invited to sit at a on a committee um, that was going to apparently oversee the recommendations. And then there was a government change mm. Mm. and the incoming government was not interested. Right. But I stayed on that committee for quite a few years until I missed one meeting and they changed the terms of reference and decided they didn't need lived experience. Oh, right. <laughs> really? After all, yeah. Wow. So okay. I thought by then I've just, I've just put it in the memoir because I did write a memoir about this whole process of um, yeah. wow. trying to heal and trying to create change. And in the yeah. end I thought, just going to have to draw a line mm. in the book and realise that, you know, what happens is, is really not a lot yeah. um, unless, you know, 
it, it takes a lot of community mm. impetus to make recommendations really happen. That's fascinating mm. that they decided to get rid of lived experience because I think, I guess like a lot of other people that we've talked to now, mm. it's, I guess it's starting to become back in fashion to have people um, with lived experience in communities and it's become a real thing, which I love. I think that's fantastic. So it's mm. fascinating that... I think, they yeah, peer, peer support it. workers and whatnot are, are the, more the norm now than the exception. And, yeah. and lived experience is really important. Yeah. yeah, and I have to reflect, too, that it's been some time since I connected with the victim services sector, so um, there may be other things in place that I'm not aware of. Yeah. I know that there was a Victims of Crime Commissioner and there was a um, victims group, um, and I, there was no kind of transparency about how to get on that group. I tried quite a few times in the end. I just sort of gave up. Right. And I haven't tried to reach out to the new Victims of Crime Commissioner, but I have got in the back of my mind that I might do that. Yeah. yeah. Because what I've sort of found is a bit like the birth and then, you know, the early childhood and mm -hmm. then the Victims mm -hmm. of Crime stuff, you know. The lived experience, what it does offer our community is is an inexhaustible fuel of goodwill of people. So you sort of talked a bit earlier about, you know, what that's like. Everybody is so different. And for mm. some of us, we need to be involved proactively in change as part of mm -hmm. our healing. And and as I say, that, that, that does provide that really strong and enduring impetus and resource for our community. Mm. Just before we conclude our discussion about this particular aspect of what you've done in the past, um, where do you see things now compared to when you started that journey, you know, convening that group and, and trying to put things in place? To, are, are things better for people who've been victims today than they were then? I would hesitate to, to feel like I could make a strong comment, but having um, I'm, I'm currently reading the book Witness um, by Louise Milligan and it would look to me like very much no. Okay. Um, yep. And again, you know, I don't want to, I, I feel like, there are really good people doing work on the front line, the front line of the support services, the police, the health system, victim support services. They do do really good work. It's mm. just that it's not enough. Yeah. Mm. yeah, and it's become patently obvious in our federal parliament yeah. that there's still massive issues. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's interesting, you know, I felt like, you know, when I um, wrote my memoir, I realised... You know, because I did, I did feel a fair bit of a sense of failure that we didn't get recurrent funding, and that I decided in the end that it was better to deincorporate the group because it's quite a lot of work to keep a group going, and it mm -hmm. felt like we could at least preserve a service in the um, women's health and family services if we kind of, you know, mm -hmm. deincorporated at that point. But I definitely still have regrets because that voice is absent. I think. Right. Okay. Um, I don't think there's a strong women's voice. So um, nothing's replaced it, really. No. No. No, okay. there hasn't really been anything yeah. to replace that. And um, as the former Victims of Crime Commissioner once said to me when we had a meeting, she said the difficulty, she was, she was from Victoria, she said the difficulty in WA is if you don't pick something else up, nobody else will. And, and I think, you know, there's something in that. And mm. it's, that's really stayed with me. So it sort of it ticks away in the back of my mind. but Yeah. So yeah. On the to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> but there's been so, yeah, and I suppose, you know, what I reflected afterwards was a we didn't call it co-design then, but I was trying to co-design yeah. mm. something with people with lived experience and, and there was no interest, zero interest right. in doing that. <laughs> I wonder if someone started that or attempted to start that now, if that we, if we, they would get you know, a different mm. result. Look, it'd be really, that's a really good question. It's something for me to consider and, and it's something I might put to um, put out to the community because there will be people who will be doing work in this space, I'm, I'm sure of it. I'm sure there's momentum for it now, like yeah. an appetite for it now more than ever. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's yeah. really true. And, and as I say often in this sector, you've got to look for the wave and catch the wave.
Now, you mentioned a memoir. Have you published that? I self-published a memoir, okay. yes. Where, where is that available from? Well, I you can buy it at, at all online yep. um, uh, thingamidoos. So you can just <laughs> – I do have a website too. You can sort of buy it from there as well. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Um, what's, what's the memoir called? It's called Not My Story. Okay. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I should have brought you in a copy. Yeah, yeah no, that's all right. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to look it up and we'll put a link to that yeah, in the, we'll in the show notes so people can find it. Yeah, yeah, yeah that'd yeah. be awesome. Great. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we've sort of talked about the maternity experiences that you had and then the, the violence, victims of violence. Um, you also worked at the Office of Health Review, um, which also I think used to be called the Health and Disability Services Complaints Office. Is that yes, right? so it's currently called the Health and Disability um, Services Complaints okay. Office, but yeah. it was called the Office of Health Review. So, yeah. um, so circling back to my first paid role as an advocate, so mm-hmm. I spent mm-hmm. two years as an advocate in the Health Consumers Council, you know, also meanwhile thinking about what was going on in um, the sexual assault area and also was really interested in what ha- was happening at King Edward Memorial Hospital. I joined their community advisory council at some point around about that time. So I was still sort of keeping a hand in with some of the maternity stuff. Okay. And as mentioned, I feel I, I do continue to feel that that independent advocacy is one of our most important social equity tools that we have. Mm-hmm. It really works. And I think, you know, that's something that I'm really hoping we can continue to see recognised and funded. Yeah. I just would reflect that the Health Consumers Council is the only consumer body in the nation because each state has a similar one. Most right. states do, I should mm-hmm. say. South Australia has just recently been defunded, but okay. most states have a health consumer equivalent. But we're the only state that actually does individual advocacy. And the power okay. of that is every day phone calls are coming in every day, every day, every day, yep. where you can see the gap between what the policy says, what the framework says, what the care, the yep. model of care says, mm-hmm. and what people mm-hmm. are experiencing. Yeah. yeah, we had a great conversation with Margaret Doherty that, you know, that you're, I think you may have listened to. Um, And she sort of mentioned about knowing the legislation and knowing what your rights are, you know, in terms of um, transitional care planning and and that sort of thing, discharge planning, I think it was. Um, So, yeah, it's it's great to hear that there's people, you know, who've got your organisation as a resource if they don't know how to navigate the system and what they're entitled to and what questions to ask. I mean, there is a mental health advocacy service who do really great work but they, they are a statutory body like the Health and Disability Complaint Service Office, but they um, usually can only support people who are involuntary mental health consumers, so that leaves that massive gap of voluntary mental voluntary, health consumers, yeah. and so they come to our agency, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, we are very inadequately funded to do that. Okay. So so you guys more focus on non-mental health-related health problems? We, or? It's around about a 60-40 split between okay. health and mental health, around okay. about well, 70-30 sits around that. Yeah, of, Okay. Um, Interesting. And mm. what, what typically, what, what are the highest volume types of issues that people have? So it, in many ways, it doesn't, it doesn't change that much okay. <laughs> over time. So, so there, there are, you know, there are things that, you know, actually the quality of care, like people aren't happy with either the diagnosis or the treatment. Um, very often people are not happy with either the way they were treated mm-hmm. or how they were communicated, which I know kind of sit a little bit within the same space. Mm-hmm. There are, um, in the mental health complaints, there's usually much more of a focus on rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do often get people who say, they say I'm voluntary, but if I leave, they'll make me involuntary. So there's that yep. grey area. So they can't access the mental health advocacy service. You yeah. know? So so rights, obviously, in mental health is often a bigger issue. Yeah. Um, we do tend to have more public health, um, people who are going to public hospitals as opposed to private hospitals. So it will be more about um, both the actual clinical treatment and how, how they're treated as human beings. Mm-hmm. But um, 
uh, we do also do private ones, and often they can be about cost. Okay. Yeah. So that's okay. I can imagine that could get quite mm. um, as well tricky. as the above. But you know, you may mm. find in a private hospital they are more attuned to customer service in a way. So mm. sometimes those aspects can be better. I think um, we just hear over and over again about how people want to be seen as a whole person and not liver in bed nine. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. So I think I got a bit lost here. So what exactly was your role in this? So I worked at the Health Consumers Council as yep. an advocate. Yeah, yep. okay. And so, so I did two years being an advocate yep. and we worked alongside the Office of Health Reviewers. It right. was known then. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm, and so I thought, I wonder what it would be like to go over to there and see if I could create change from within because yep. I could see how that's a statutory body that does have powers and there were some frustrations and tensions as they were often are with sister agencies and I thought maybe I'll go over there and, yeah. and so it's providing that together. connection yeah yeah, to, yeah okay. okay so like it's like it's a translation role almost like that's, connection and yeah and sort of together the um, health consumers council is independent non-profit so yeah, it sits okay. kind of on the edge of the circle whereas the Health and Disability Complaint Service Office is inside the circle. That's yeah. a statutory body. Yeah. Right. And do they have to report to Parliament? They report directly to the Minister for to Health. the Minister? Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. And so how long did you spend in, in that office? I lasted two years. Okay. Yeah. And, and change from within was not something that seemed to work so well. Okay. So your experience was one of a bit of frustration maybe or? Yeah, it was just wasn't a great cultural fit too. So, so when I first arrived, I remember the the professionals who I'd felt frustrated from with from time to time when I met them, such lovely humans, you know. And so it gives you, I think it gives you that important insight around, mm. you know, it can be frustrating. You can see things aren't happening, but but the actual people do care. But mm. the the difficulty with government is that processes trump almost everything. The system rather than yeah. the individual. The system, yeah, yeah, correct. And so whilst the agency, you know, if you look at the legislation that set that agency up, it's there to try and even up the power imbalance, what it actually does, I think, is just enshrine it. Right. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I have had fantasies about running it, but I'm not sure that <laughs> – I'm not sure about that. Look, I, I think, you know, I think you've got to sort of work to your strengths and, and my strength is definitely much more sitting in that not-for-profit space where there's a range of different things you can do. Like you can get a little bit of funding from Lotcher West and try something. Mm. Can't really do that in government, you know. no. And so I was going to ask you actually how yeah. the Health Consumers Council is funded. So we are funded by the health department. Okay. We do get funding from the WA Primary Health Alliance and from projects from time to time. Mm -hmm. We would be very interested in seeing what we can do to earn our own income. Um, but, of course, you know, that's you've got to weigh that up. There are some opportunities we've been exploring around engagement consulting. Mm -hmm. I think you need to be so careful, though, that you're not being um, brought on to give the blue report or the red report, but you actually are doing something that really is um, effective engagement, which means you can't say at the beginning what's going to happen at the end. Yep. And that can be very, very hard for your clients to do okay. that, I think. Of course. Yeah. yeah. And are there expectations that come with that funding? I know this is one thing Margaret's really strong on with Mental Health Matters too, is that they wanted to remain completely independent. And that's one of the reasons they've never tried to get any government funding. Are th is that funding tied with you know, certain expectations? Well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> There's no such thing as a free lunch. Um, mm. Look, I think um, it's, a, it's a really interesting space. So the organisation was set up 25 years ago and it was a group of, a little bit over 25 years ago, and it was a group of, of patient advocates that really wanted to see something happen. It was actually established 
you know, by a bureaucrat, spent six months making sure all the paperwork was done and then it was handed over to the um, first CEO um, or executive director, Michelle Kosky. So she'd worked quite a lot in the aid sector and mm-hmm. she was a really um, important leader. So she led that organisation for the first 16 years okay. of its existence and she was yeah. the reason why we have an individual advocacy service in our state. Mm-hmm. So amongst her other achievements, that's one of those enduring ones I think is yep. so important. Um, so I did work for Michelle when I was an advocate, so I learned a lot from her. Um, So things have shifted to in our state. I mean, this is probably a bit techie, (laughs) but, you know, we do have a policy called um, Delivering Community Services in Partnership, which actually the Barnett government put together, and it's actually a really good policy, one of the better policies in our nation, Mm -hmm. and it really sort of articulates that there has to be a respectful relationship between government and the NGO, Mm. not sort of like the servant-master routine. Yep. We may have already alluded to the fact that there are policies and then there's reality. So yeah. I right. think it's something that, that always needs work. We we do have a really good relationship with our um, contract manager and, and um, our policy people in, in health. And I think it's I think it's really I think it's really important to have um, a range of different things. I've always been such an admirer of Margaret and Mental Health Matters too, and I completely understand why she's made that choice and have at times envied that choice. Mm-hmm. But I think that the, the challenge is to, is to, you know, it's really about trying to um, make sure that we have people who can't afford to work for nothing, um, mm. you know, can be part of change. Not that yeah. I'm in any way, shape or form trying to impugn anything about Mental Health Matters too. I think their um, achievements are incredible and have been, you know, because as I say, you know, what we'll do for nothing, that's... that's um, that's pretty pure. It's a pretty pure model, and and it's mm. the, it's you know certainly in that case the grief and suffering as as um, consumers and family members around you know the health and yeah. justice system. Yeah, and, and I think all of these system. kind of groups all work together in the end as well. So they're all supporting I think you have the to. same ideas. And I think yeah. it's important mm. for people to be who they are. Like yeah. I think there was a bit of a trend there for let's conglomerate. Well, there's really nothing in it <laughs> yeah, for, no. for NGOs to come together. But there's a lot in it to come together, and that's you know obviously we've worked with mental health matters too, you know, mm. before and would always and ever work with them, mm-hmm. you know, and Consumers and Mental Health WA, Men- Mental Health Illness Fellowship WA, you know, Helping Minds. There's a mm. lot of us out there, yep. Yep. but we do hold different spaces. And I think, you know, the strength is in coming together. Mm. And mm. you guys have the power of having the individual advocacy that you yeah. that you offer, whereas a lot of places don't have the resources to do that. That's right. Yeah. So it's, you know, you think like if you're going to get those resources, please make them count. Mm. Yeah. So do you get referred a lot of um, individuals looking for advocacy support? Well, we actually don't advertise. Um, it's, so if you look at if you look on a website for a hospital or on their leaflets, you'll often see if you've got a complaint, you know, go to the patient liaison, go to HADSCO, as it's known for short, or go to the Health Consumers Council. So it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of in the loop there. Mm. The Mental Health Advocacy Service will put people through who are um, voluntary, mm-hmm. that they, they can't assist. So, so that's... You know, the Health Consumers Council is known very well to the system, to everyday people know. Okay. Yeah, that, and that's kind of what I was just thinking about is like, I guess this council is something that I've, I've only heard about over maybe the past two years and it's only because now I'm starting to work in this space, whereas it does seem like a very useful resource for people 
to just realise that it is there just in case. It's mm. yeah, it's in- interesting how I, I don't think if I asked any of my friends, they would know about it. Yeah, I didn't know about it before I went for a job there. Yeah, you mm. know, all those years ago. Um, and I think, you know, that's the difficulties. You're given such a small sniff of funding that, you know, if if two and a half million West Australians knew about us and wanted to use us, then we simply wouldn't cope. Mm. I think when I was, um, you know, so, so after the Office of Health Review, I went to Community Midwifery WA for about four years. Mm-hmm. Then I did a bit of a stint at Waycross for a year on outcomes-based contracting with that policy I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I actually sat in the health department. Okay. It was a really interesting role. Yeah. And then mm. I've come back to the role. So... Um, uh, now, where was I going with that? <laughs> um, something, what was the conversation we had before was about um, people knowing about Health Consumers Council? Yeah, so I basically just said, like, a lot of, I guess a lot of my friends wouldn't know um, a, yeah. about the council and how it's used and any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yes, what I was going to say, apologies, um, was when I was doing research for the interview for the executive director role yeah. at the time, I just self-published, not my story. I was having, you know, I was just about to turn 50 and I was having one of those fabulous midlife crises we have. Lovely. And I thought, I want to start a business. And so I worked at Wacos for that year, sort of thinking, let's try a few things, let's try a few things. But then the Health Consumers Council job came up and I knew I had to. I had to go for it. I absolutely had to, had to, had to go for it. So I was doing research and I stumbled across a website, which at the time was called Patient Opinion and now is called Care Opinion. So Care Opinion was developed in the UK and it's designed to be a moderated platform for people to have a quality conversation about their health and human services. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, in England, it's more hospitals. In Scotland, it's health and human services. Okay. So, you know, disability, jails, mental health services, disability, aged care, the lot, the lot, the lot. And so what it provides is it provides one easy entry point for the members of the public to write their experiences. Mm -hmm. So when you mention that to somebody who runs a health service, they usually go a bit grey and then Mm -hmm. you say, enduringly, half those stories are positive and that's usually quite a surprise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of those other half, around about 5% are severely critical. The others are, you know, that bit was good, that bit wasn't so good. And and the thing about the moderation, as we know with social media, that's um, a very unsafe, bullying sort of environment most of the time fairly quickly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So this is moderated to avoid that. So if you post a story, as a community member, you're anonymous. The service is is identified. Okay. And so that will go to the um, not-for-profit organisation that runs it based in Queensland. If it's severely critical, they will contact the health service, give them an opportunity to respond so both can go up. So it gives them the opportunity to say, okay, we've got this negative feedback and this is what we've done. Because it's not just about getting Mm. negative feedback, it's Mm. what you do with it. What um, Mm. I really loved about the tool was the transparency Mm because, as we know, one of the big things that will help us move from this... Um, constant churning of pulling out reports with recommendations <laughs> and inquiries and recommendations that don't get implemented. So many. Yeah, so, so many. many. Mm. Is transparency. So yeah. transparency is one of those big um, behaviour change things is what we're looking for. So it actually tracks the cycle between when the story's told right up to if a change is made okay. and it documents that change in the public domain where people can see it. Yeah. 
So, um, and obviously, you know, if, if you use somebody's name, like Jenny was really horrible to me, they'll take Jenny's name out. But if you say Jenny was amazing in emergency and, and I can't thank her enough, they'll leave Jenny's name in. Yeah, okay. okay. And health services have started to do sometimes do Facebook posts where they'll take a photo of the staff member and they'll have the story underneath. Oh, that's nice. So there's that celebration that may yep. not have occurred, yep. you know, because the story may not have, may have gotten lost in the, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's definitely important to celebrate all the positive feedback for things absolutely. like that as well. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. The, so, the social media algorithms, they kind of profit from negative stories, which is why people yeah. are encouraged to post and them. and Clickbait and all that. Yeah. But, yeah, it doesn't – I don't think it's um, that constructive. You know, it's obviously yeah. important that negative feedback is provided, but I think positive feedback is just as important. Yeah. Look, yeah. I think so too, and I think one of the things that can be frustrating for somebody like me that's now – 20 years, two decades of sitting alongside the system and all the opportunities I've had, all the briefings I've had, all the all the different projects I've been involved in, um, you get to understand a bit more what the real issues are. But you can't do that in a soundbite because I just want to talk about ambulance ramping. It's like, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. but, 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 but that's, there's all this background and knowledge that the ambulance ramping is just a symptom of, um, you know, some of the funding models we have, which have all these perverse incentives to get people into hospitals yes. so the yep. hospital can get paid. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, <laughs> that's one of the complexities of our hybrid health funding model with the federal and the state funding being separate to fund specific separate services. But obviously a lot of people are going through both systems at the same time. Oh, they yeah. are and going back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So with the GPs funded by a federal system and the hospitals by state and GPs are essentially often small or sometimes larger businesses, what's in it for them to do all this stuff? You yeah. know, nothing. There is nothing in it for them. It does not work for them. Yeah. You know, and I think, you know, there's, there's so many, it, it's just a really difficult thing. Like when you know, getting back to my initial um, maternity example, you know, that really begins in the GP surgery. They say, you know, do you have private health insurance? Which obstetrician would you like? I mean, that is not an evidence-based conversation. No. If you are low risk, you don't need an obstetrician. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can have one if you want, but you don't actually need one. Where in that conversation is maternity care. Mm. So trying to shift that conversation mm -hmm. i've realized over two decades is you're actually trying to shift a business model and that is not going to shift in a moment right particularly if it's working and gaining money mm. for them yeah 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 i saw this report um it was about the covid recovery in health oh yeah and i thought i'll just do a google i'll just search the pdf so there <laughs> yeah. were two mentions of the word consumer one was more about consumers in going to the shops and buying stuff. And the other was about being a health consumer. Yeah. There was something like 40 references to clinician and there were, a, I stopped counting it, about 120 to health system. <laughs> so what's top of our list? It's not consumers. No. Mm. And it's not the frontline staff either. Obviously, some of the work you're doing is trying to create awareness and change that conversation a bit. But I don't know from a system level what you could do to try and buck that trend or, you know. Well, I think, you know, I like to think um, <laughs> positively. And we have the Sustainable Health Review report came out. Um, it's actually nearly two years ago, but, you know, mm. there's been COVID and a few other things. Uh, yet again, that is a report that offers an opportunity for change. Mm -hmm. So we're at that space now where... Is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? And how are we going to um, support and 
keep the system accountable mm -hmm. for making that happen. So um, there's lots of different strategies, but obviously I think one of the key ones is the lived experience voice. So yeah. there is a recommendation around, you know, um, changing up the way engagement is done with citizens, consumers, mm -hmm. community and family. So I'm mm -hmm. co-lead on that recommendation with somebody in the health system. So that was the first external co-lead on the recommendations, but I'm hoping that will change because because the point of the Sustainable Health Review, it's got a few points. One is most of many of the things that people are coming to, say, the emergency department with are not health issues. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a partnership response across human services and health. So we have to share the problem. Uh, that is a huge culture shift, getting that done. It, it, making sure there's um, a shift in spending all the money on the hospitals and shifting it to prevention. So we, we're trying to get up to a 5% spend. We've got about a 1% spend yep. at the moment. Yep. So we're trying to get up to 5%. That's going to be mammoth. Mm. Um, so obviously the consumer involvement's a, a really key one. But it's it's really, it, the whole message of that is this cannot be health alone. And what's happening at the moment, of course, is this is quite difficult to achieve because people in the health department have got their names against things. They've got all the responsibility, but then but then they have to kind of somehow share the responsibility but not yeah. share the KPIs. You know, the whole thing about how do you actually partner? Yeah. And we discover this over and over again. It's difficult. Like I personally think we could mm -hmm. combine our federal and state dollars any way we like if, mm. if there was a willingness and there may be some instruments that would need to change, but we could do that yeah. as a nation, as a state, we could do that. Yeah. But... Again, you're disrupting a business model. That's not going yeah. to happen in a moment and it's not going to happen, you know, as we know, people who have money and privilege are not going to give that up without a fire. That's true. Yeah. And, and you need yeah. to show that it will benefit them more. Exactly. Yeah. In the yeah. long run. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, I guess, where a lot of our research is pitched these days is, one, we involve consumers yep. as a matter of course and, yeah. and that comes down to the language we use yeah. in writing applications. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, we get somebody to do a plain English yes. summary, yeah. you yeah. know, and say, take that word out. Yep. No one's going to know what it means other than other mm. academics and mm. and also when it comes to interpreting results and mm. translating the findings, um, they've got to be digestible to the, the general public. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting what you say about the funding and the lack of motivation for change. And I guess that's another challenge for people working in research and advocacy um, at the consumer level is trying to focus that conversation um, so you can look at the implications of what changing the funding models might mean in terms of the number of services that we might be able to provide you know, more mm. than we are currently. Um, you know, things could be more efficient. Or different, we or, yeah. may have to stop doing things. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, that's, you know, again, you know, it's it's a, it's a feels a bit like a long-distant dream in a way, but um, going back to Scotland, you know, they've spent quite a bit of time um, developing a realistic medicine approach. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like what we've done in, in you know, around the um, uh, high-value healthcare, you know, mm -hmm. trying to think about, you know, there's that five questions to ask your doctor through the Choosing Wisely campaign. You know, do I need this test or treatment? What happens if I do nothing? What are the risks? What are the benefits? What are the alternatives? And what will it cost? Mm. You know, so so just having that simple conversation can really shift mm. things. But but imagine if you know if you take the Scottish realistic medicine to its extreme, it's really about it's really about having those actual explicit conversations with yeah. the community and delegating some of those really tough decisions yeah. to community. 
And I think the health system, so health problems are often a symptom. I think you sort of alluded to this of other things going on in someone's life. And I'm thinking about the homelessness sector. Mm. A lot of people end up in hospital, the ED, you know, and maybe admitted to, mm. to the ED ward sometimes because they're homeless. Because they don't have a home. Yeah. 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 So, so obviously, you know, there, there's been quite a bit of work we try to do in the state. There's been a really great partnering of all the NGOs that provide the support because obviously just giving someone a house and thinking that's going to work isn't isn't appropriate. Mm. But um, I've had I've had the privilege of watching the homeless healthcare GP work at Royal Perth, just watch what he does. Mm. So just as an example, he pulls the files out and then he'll go, okay, um, that doesn't look quite right. You know, the, the person, the busy person on ED who doesn't have that, you know, social determinants of lens health may, may have missed yeah. things. So what he would go is he would go and he would, he would just kneel right down next to somebody and he would just, you know, say, oh, you know, hi, this is me, this is what I do. Then one of the things, questions he would ask is, is he would say, are you interested in exploring getting a house? Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to. Yeah. Well, if you're not out, you go. He's just exploring it. Is that something you're interested in? Mm. Um, and then if the answer is yes, then a RUA or other NGO person will connect with them yeah. while they're in ED, while they're there. Yeah. And and so that whole process develops. But, but you know, he also doesn't neglect the health needs because they can get neglected. You know, sometimes, you know, it could be, you mm. know, like a, um, you know, I remember one specific example about someone who had a lot of heartburn, but it seemed like they were getting all this cardiac monitoring. What they really needed was good management of yeah. that, and that, that provided a lot of relief, mm. you know, and confidence, you know, for that person. So so there's there are some really good models. The challenge is funding them yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in an ongoing way, and mm-hmm. the challenge is, you know, we get caught in those pilot things because we just want to try stuff and see if it works, and we try stuff and it works pilot runs out that's and it. you know yeah, it's, sort of, it. it's again yeah. it gets back to the difficulties of changing the system yeah. Yeah. i think you might have been referring to dr andrew davies there oh was. Yeah. yeah so he's actually been a previous guest on the he's such podcast. a wonderful man yeah yeah, yeah. and great. and he actually has done a really good job of keeping homeless health care going and and he they has. do do attract funding from philanthropists and, and other but yes it's places. it's a lot yeah. of work it is yeah it's a constant for the funding i mean not yeah. just the incredible amount of work he does yeah. to be present as a gp in that way it, i love the fact that his tray with his that's how he gets his medical records in the hospital yeah. he has a tray right. with his laptop on love it <laughs> see these are those other things that we experienced you know trying to mm. speak across the systems yeah mm. we'll, we'll probably we'll do an episode in more depth on homeless healthcare because we spoke to them so. in, in the context of covid yeah. so it was a very limited conversation but they do great work it's, outreach yeah. work Absolutely. and, and some yeah. of the new changes would be really interested you know to understand where they're at yeah, yeah. no definitely so I guess just to pivot from there, mm-hmm. one of the things that I read on the Health Consumers Council website was this concept of outcomes-based contracting. So that actually sits underneath that delivering community services and partnership policy. Okay. So it was one of some of that whole reform, and one of those key things is is instead of just saying how many workshops have you done, you're really trying to see can you start to explore what difference that has made. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, like it could be that immediate self-reported outcome of. I knew this much before and I know this much now. We often ask people just a simple question, what three things are you going to do differently? And it gets people thinking. You know, what you're hoping to do is you're hoping to plant a seed through a workshop. You're not just wanting to count that I had this many people and they were satisfied. Yes, they, they are They are both output measures that are important, mm-hmm. but you're trying to get to the outcomes and the outcomes mm-hmm. are really you're trying to sort of indicate what difference can you is it making. There's a lot of complexities. You could definitely <laughs> do a whole... Um, <laughs> Um, episode just on outcomes reporting and um, 
I think, you know, obviously you've got, you've got population level outcomes and you've got service outcomes. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we're quite interested in is also process outcomes, especially around when you're engaged as a lived experience person. What is that like? What kind of briefing did you get? What kind of a debrief did you get? How did you feel? You know, did they say thanks very much and you never heard anything back? Do you see how your input is actually influencing mm-hmm. outcomes? Do you feel like, you know, did you get paid on time? Mm-hmm. You know, did you get... You know, were the meetings at a time where you could actually participate? Yeah. You know, what other barriers to parking it's, and so forth? Yeah, it's mm. that qualitative aspect that you that doesn't get picked up by linked, you know, health records and that sort of thing. Mm, exactly. Yeah. It really doesn't. And I think, you know, uh, interestingly across research, um, there was a, there's been a national project around consumer and community involvement in research, and it's just clear that yes, while there are some tools to measure outcomes, they haven't been used widely. So I mm. don't know if that's something you want to consider in your forthcoming projects. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I guess research is one of those areas that I feel quite, um, you know, could be, there's a few different things. Number one is I'd love question, more questions to be consumer generated. If you, for every condition you can think of, there's a Facebook group and there are really important research questions, the mm. things that are really making their lives hell, that could be something that, that could be the subject of research. Yeah. But of course, then there's the research curiosity research, which and, and that's obviously really important. You know, I'm not saying, you know, it's a bit like prevention and tertiary. You've got to have both. Mm. But there is so, so little, I think, of the consumer-generated research. Yes, you know, consumers can be involved in your research questions. But what about their research questions? When do mm. they get to see the light of day? That's true. And a lot of us come to projects for later on once they've been designed as researchers. You know, someone more senior has got funding, you know, Which five years ago f- for something. And yes. so we're constrained a little bit in what we can of do because that's already that's been, there, those yeah. data have already been collected. But it's, yeah, it's a really good point for mm. prospective research, stuff that we're it's looking to do. It's a great opportunity. And, you know, I have to say, I often get a call the night before from a researcher. It's got to be in tomorrow. Yep. Would you support? And you have a quick look at the budget and there'll be more on stationary than there is for consumer engagement. Yeah, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a rebalancing that will happen, I believe. Uh, there's a lot of momentum now. Mm. Mm. I think that's something that we touched on with Margaret actually was yeah. coming up with a, you know, a schedule. So there was a minimum number of hours that someone would get called upon to come out, like three hours instead of one hour to come mm. to the city for one hour to give us People realising that it's actually a job. Yeah. Like it's actually something that's necessary and it is a job and it is important and needs to be considered whenever forming any form of research yeah. or yes, agreed. object or whatever. And, you know, I think Margaret's, you know, makes that really important point, like, you know, what, what I was trying to allude to mm. earlier. Some people will do this for nothing, but that is a privilege. Yeah. Mm. And, and I think it's so important to make sure you've got that diversity of voices, not just the ones that can afford. So I think, you know, if you look back on some of the consumer movement, you know, you can sort of see that there's not that diversity and that's, that's you know, part of it is the barriers to being being at the table. Yeah. And I think Margaret's probably done more than most consumer <laughs> carer advocates to change that through the work yeah. she's done with the Mental Health Commissioner about the Working Together mm. um, Toolkit and Framework and the, and the payment policy. Yeah, mm. no, it's fantastic. It's, good. it's great to hear all these different perspectives mm. and mm. it opens our eyes because our it systems does. in academia aren't always set up. Really no, well they're, for not. That. they're not. They're mm. not. And it's really interesting too, you know, we were talking earlier before we started the interview about podcasts and, yeah. you know, I mentioned Brene Brown and one of the things I love about her so much is her research translation, her absolute commitment to research translation. So the work she's doing, she is um, helping everyday people have better lives because she's translating in a way that makes sense. Mm. And I think, you know, I just find, I look at research articles and they're 
deliberately obtuse and um, oh, it's so bad. Obscure <laughs> and mm. and yeah. you know, research translations. We know in Australia we've got a bit of an issue around that, and that's yeah. something I would love to see change. And I guess I feel you know, if we started by researching the questions that consumers are really caring about, yeah. That would be a good start. I think mm. that was one of both of our motivations for starting the podcast. Is Absolutely. Some, you know, Translation. Court, yeah. Courtney's got a big interest in science communication, yep. which mm. is a, a nice way of just saying, say I something clearly. I like talking clearly. about things. Yeah. 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 Say something clearly so people can understand it. <laughs> and I think, you know, like once you know something, it really does change your life. Absolutely. Like, you know, I think... Um, I know for myself, for example, we are talking a little bit earlier about, you know, homelessness and emergency departments. And one of the things that I learned um, last year, we were doing some work around the Healthy Weight Action Plan, which we renamed from obesity because we felt healthy weight. Made nice. Yeah, that's good. Bit I like that. Yeah. yeah tr- you know, because stigma is massive in mm. that area. Oh, absolutely. Mm. And one of the things I discovered that I hadn't heard about before was um, the FS Childhood Experience Scorecard. So that actually emanated from obesity work. Mm-hmm. Not psychology, which is which is really interesting, but mm-hmm. um, one of those um, opportunities to really understand, you know, the impact of trauma. I think, you know, I'd say in the last twenty five years we've finally worked out that oh yeah, that does have a bit of an impact. But I think, you know, the the link between uh, trauma, especially um, complex post traumatic stress disorder. So so that's what I personally. You know, I always wondered what's the difference between something when you have a single incident trauma like mm-hmm. I did I did as a 34-year-old to when you've had childhood trauma. And so mm-hmm. complex post-traumatic stress disorder, that, that a light went on for me. I actually yeah. read, um, you know, if we're talking about a lived experience, the um, memoir, The Prettiest Horse in the Glue Factory. Okay. And it's an incredible memoir. Um, and I have forgotten his name. It will come to me. Corey White. Sorry, Corey White. So he's a comedian. Yeah. And so his experience of, you know, being in and out of home care and having a very, very dysfunctional childhood. Um, and he would have been, I think, 22 or 23 before he kind of understood what it was. And mm. all those years of all that stuff he was doing it mm. finally made sense. You think, so at no time in any of those out-of-care placements when he was bouncing in and out, was there anything given to him like that little... You know, just that, that little rope, moment, that, that little yeah. rope of hope that, yeah. you know, mm. this is a completely normal way of coping with abnormal craziness and, mm. and these are the ways out, Yeah, you know. And so, so for me, I guess that's why research translation is an area of such passion because once you have that sort of information, you can turn your life around. Yeah, mm. oh, definitely. So we're probably coming towards the end of our chat. I, I was going to see if there was any sort of, um, I guess, wins that you've had um, in terms of policies or, or things maybe that you're currently working on that you're hoping are going to yeah, have a good outcome that well. you wanted yeah. to talk yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I will just delve back slightly into the past. Probably one yeah. of the, you know, those moments where you think that's that's something that I feel so happy I was involved in. So at Community Midwifery WA, there was, and we didn't really call it then, but it was a co-designed um, postnatal depression support group. And um, it basically, the, the, the surmise was that you'd have somebody with lived experience and somebody clinical co-leading the group mm-hmm. so that all the women and their babies, because it was a mother-baby group, so it was a pre-crawling group, yeah. would see always somebody who had come through the other side. So they have this always this hope, okay. always this hope that they know that, that that's what recovery looks like. It's right in front of them. Mm-hmm. But also there is that support and safety and, you know, um, roundedness of support. So that, um, that group is still going. It's mm-hmm. now called the mother-baby group. So I think that's one of those things that, 
you know, my role was much more about seeing the talented people who wanted to come together and getting the money. Yeah. And I suppose that's, for me, that's one of my big passions is is getting money to the right stuff. To so, allow those things to happen. So that yeah. was that one. And so I'm then going to spring forward to, um, I think the Sustainable Health Review is a really important opportunity for our state. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is um, it is for all West Australians. And certainly when I sat in the panel for 18 months, um, getting that report together and now you know, in the early days of um, what is going to be a 10-year implementation phase. Um, Very passionate about how can we have um, more voices at the table. So there's obviously got lots of ideas, you know, the sort of concept of something like a, you know, citizen senate where you've got that online opportunities to be involved, you know, because not everyone wants to come along to all those boring meetings, but people (laughs) have a lot to say that's really important and and a variety of things and, you know, things you can work on together. It's It's about that network of network approaches. A lot of stuff is already happening. You'd be doing really good stuff in research, you know, how can we link you up with other people doing good things in research in other areas and link consumers to you and vice versa and so so I feel I can I can see it in my head you know this <laughs> this um it's like a movement it's a movement for lived experience involvement in our health and human services and I think it's an opportunity to change the game because mm-hmm. we're stuck yeah and you think it's going to happen in the next 10 years so it's the implementation phase do you think it, that we're going to be successful with this one so all I can say is is um that we are doing absolutely yeah. everything we can to make that real. Awesome. I think um, one of the things this might be of interest to you, but one of the concepts we kick around at a few of our um, advocacy agencies is like a recommendation page watch yep. where we start to get the overlay of all the really key things, the mental mm-hmm. health and drug and alcohol plan, mm-hmm. the state disability plan, sustainable health review, mm-hmm. need I go on, aged yep. care yep. Royal Commission, yep. Yep. disability Royal Commission. So something that really pulls together, okay, we said we're going to do this. Yep. Just like the deaths in custody, we know certain things work. We haven't done them. Why haven't we done them? You look at any prison report and yeah. from the office of the inspector of the chief of custodial mm-hmm. services and he'll say it's not that we don't know what to do what's what's lacking is action so yeah. you know what it's do we do I how think, do we yeah. feet to the fire yeah. there's got to be some accountability and i think there's a lot of wasted resources because we commission all these reports and reviews and the aged care sector is a great example yeah. and, there, and there are others yeah. um, plenty of others yeah, it's so like why do we why do we have to keep Doing, you know, having reviews on the same thing yeah. without something. We're rewriting the same things when we know. Yeah, what it was interesting because Lee Sales actually did a, a quote on that um, just last week, and 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 uh, I guess you know if you want to be cynical, and I know it's not always wise to be cynical, but it's a, it's an alternative to action. So what I what mm. I said on the day that the Sustainable Health Review was launched, I said this is a diet plan. It's not lost weight. Mm. Yeah, losing weight is really hard, and it's ongoing, and it never stops. And you can slip back at any moment and it's forward, backward, forward, backward. Mm -hmm. You need a really good peer support group. You need to be all on the same team. So thinking of it like that. And and so uh, I think it's that mix of of pushing but also partnership. We -hmm. we need to Mm -hmm. do this together. Yeah. It has to be positive partnership. Yeah. And I I think if we can get more of the general community motivated and interested and, and involved in that process, then I think politicians and yeah, when it becomes a community whatnot, problem then yeah, things gets done. They become more accountable. They I th- have to. I think that's yeah. the opportunity. I know that that um, I know for myself I've thought about this an awful lot over the last six years in this role. And, you know, I know there's different tools, like I know the care opinion if if the members of the general public understood it was there, I think it would get used more. Yeah. I am really actively trying to advocate for us to have not just public hospitals. We are the first state to have all public hospitals on it. Mm-hmm. But to have all 
mm. human services oh. as yeah. well. So it may be a little early. I'm often a bit ahead of the game. <laughs> I'm a co-design project all those years ago. But, um, but I think that those sorts of um, movements, you know, mm. once, once the community gets the hold of it, then that's I'll, it. I wonder yeah. if there's scope to create awareness of that amongst children at school because often they drag their parents Mm. Up, they do, they know. do. I, I know it's always quite challenging to get anything in the education curriculum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I and think I don't they've know. got so many things that they're already doing. Yeah, they're under yeah. pressure a lot. Yeah. That's yeah. right. And and it's one of those things that, again, I think um, some time, resources and, and you know, a bit of a co-design response to how would we do that. What What's happened in, say, Scotland, for example, and, and you know, in the UK too, what, what turns the curve is when the clinicians understand this is awesome and they tell their patients about it. But mm-hmm. that's not happening. That's right. not happening. Okay. Yet. So that's not one. happening in all parts of the state. Some parts of the state are more <laughs> yeah. enthusiastic adopters. And, and so, yeah. do you, do you guys have a plan to try and address that in within the Consumers Council? Yes, I mean um, we do. And yeah. and and really, to be perfectly honest, the Sustainable Health Review kind of covers it. Yeah. So it's really about doing it. Yeah. And and so. You know, and again, that there's complexities around that because it's partnership. So it's not just stuff we do on our own. We have to do that work together. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Interesting. Um, so just to finish on, unless you've got any other questions, I, I guess the, the last question I had was, so what's the next step? You've, we've got the review out. We're starting the implementation process. What is the next step, particularly, I guess, from the, the council's perspective on this? So I think, as you say, then the next step for us mm-hmm. is, is to... Um, Make it something West Australians own. Yeah, mm-hmm. so we're proud um, of it. Yeah, that's correct. So, so yeah. we are still in the process of making sure that we can have those mechanisms so we can really leverage that community movement. Yeah. So, you know, um, we do have a page on our website. So we've got you know who's who, mm-hmm. you know, all the stuff that's actually quite hard to get hold of. We put it on a page, and and you know we're just going to keep on trying layering that on, and you know work work together. We you know we've done this without any resourcing so far, so we're yeah. hoping that resourcing will be coming, and then of course that ups the game about what we can do. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. But we're always um, open if anybody's listening and they're interested, they can just join as a member. It's free. Yeah. Follow the page, um, you know, just get in touch with us. Yeah, mm. that's fantastic. We'll yeah. definitely put a link to the website yes, and, we and the relevant pages there. Yeah. And I, I guess I, I'm saying for everyday people, but also consumers, researchers, yeah. clinicians. Anyone Everyone. in the community. Because yeah. I do think it's for all of us. And I know frontline clinicians are quite passionate about it too, but they can often feel a bit like they're a bit of distance with mm. how the implementation is happening mm. and to shift that to something that's much more about hubs of yeah. excellence. Yeah, yeah excellent. Mm. Well, thanks very much for your time today. Yeah, thank Pip. you. It's been thank great you for the opportunity. It's been yeah. really great. And we'll look forward to seeing how things progress. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. our conversation with Pip Brown. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, interesting conversation. I I feel like it, she's one of those few people that there's such a, a strong voice uh, for change, uh, to try and achieve those changes and things like that. And it's a very rare personality trait, I think. Mm. And it, yeah, it's a fabulous conversation. I think she's doing some wonderful work. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yeah, I guess what she's talking about is, is the general push for people, um, consumers, to have a, a stake in stuff like research and service exactly. provision. As they should, because yeah. we, like I guess from our perspective, we are researching the communities. Yeah. It, is, it is them that are involved. They should absolutely have a voice in yeah. it. 
And a lot of these services are, are paid for with taxpayers' money. Yeah. So why shouldn't people, you know, in the community? It all just makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> have a bit more input. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so yeah, it's fascinating conversation. It's really great that she could spend the time with us to have that conversation, uh, and. The Consumer Council as well, yeah, again, like I didn't know much about it and Mm. really I think we all should. We all should have some understanding of what it is and why it's there and how it works and uh, how they can help everyone. Uh, Yeah, yeah, when it can be of use. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, to hopefully get better outcomes for patients, for doctors and for the system generally. Exactly. So we can all be better. Yeah. (laughs) So if you have any feedback on this episode or any others that you've heard, uh, you can email us at meaningofhealth@outlook.com, mm-hmm. and you can tweet us, Courtney. At health means what? So please talk to us. We would love to hear from everyone in our audience. We want to know um, how you're finding the episodes, who you want as guests, and uh, yeah. whether you just want to come say hi. Please do. We're always welcome for a yeah. chat. And if you're a, a person who's interested in health or works in health in some capacity or has some experiences with health and you and you think we you know you, we, you may want to talk to us yeah put your hand up yeah it'd be cool we're yeah. always um looking for more people to to talk to about their perspectives in in the health world I guess yeah their experience yeah yeah anyway thanks for listening and we'll be back soon thank you the meaning of health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming.